Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, January 23rd. The federal government has announced a cap on the number of international students eligible to attend Canadian post-secondary institutes. We get the details on why the government has made this decision and the impact it may have with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Next, like it or not, the energy transition is on the horizon. What sort of an impact will it have on you and your job? And what needs to be done to ensure our province can remain competitive and successful moving forward? We tackle the topic with Markham Hislop, journalist and publisher at Energy Media. And finally, the rodeo is back in town. And no, we're not talking about the stampede. We get details on this year's edition of One Yellow Rabbit Theatre's high-performance rodeo from festival producer Oliver Armstrong. Canada will put a cap on the number of international students going to school here in our country. And the federal NDP are meeting in Alberta. Joining us to talk about all the latest news from the capital, Mercedes Stevenson, Global News, Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Good morning, Mercedes. Hello, good morning. Happy, is this Happy New Year? Have we spoken to you? This this is is Happy New Year because um, I had the ill-advised experience of COVID and strep at the same time. Oh, no. Yeah, so uh, I finally, like, crawled out from under that, which is why my voice still feels And here I am. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Welcome back to the land of the living and welcome to 2024. Thank you for always joining us and uh, kicking off the year right then. Let's talk about, uh, we'll go, it will go, you know, countrywide and then we'll narrow back down to our province. But Canada putting a cap on those international students. Why, why did the feds think that it was needed? So this has been interesting because you've watched them edge towards this for a while. There's there's a lot of concern about cost of living and housing and whether international students were potentially putting pressure on the housing market. Um, And in addition to that, we're, we're potentially being put in a place where they were coming to Canada and maybe unable to support themselves. We were hearing about them going to food banks um, and and stuff like that in the fall because uh, there's very strict rules around whether or not they can work while they're here, for example. And there was sort of this concern that the program had ballooned beyond what it was initially intended to be. And the government had had resisted, and then you sort of heard the, the new Minister of Immigration, who is Mark Miller, start to say, Actually, uh, the program got out of control. Actually, we let this go too far. Um, And they got very, very blunt, and it resulted in the measures that were announced yesterday. It's going to put that uh, temporary cap for a few years on international students' ability to come to Canada. And it's interesting, I was speaking to um, a a gentleman from India who was here in Toronto yesterday, where where I am for a work thing, and um, there's a, a lot of international students that come from India, and I asked him what he thought of it, and he said, I think it's a good thing because the number who are coming here and can't work because they're not allowed to while they're going to school was just putting people in an impossible financial situation. So this was something that really, uh, there was concerns about the housing market, there was concerns about uh, the effect on the students, and, and the government seems to have recognized that. Now, how much of a difference will it make? We'll see. But it is a, a pretty significant cap and, and a significant change in tone. Mm. And Mercedes, yes, that uh, directed by the federal government, that's one side. How about on the other side, Mercedes, Canada's post-secondary institutions? Do we have any reaction from the institutions themselves? I haven't seen it, which is not to say it's not out there, because I've been sort of down a a little hole here interviewing uh, David Petraeus in in Toronto, but I can tell you they're not going to like it, because the um, reason why the international student program is so popular with universities is because international students pay a lot of money to go to school. They don't pay what Canadian students are paying. 
Um, so this has been a bit of a cash cow for universities, and they argue that it's allowed them to continue to provide programs in an increasingly expensive environment to Canadian students because international students are, are paying so much money. Uh, but a lot of folks have said as well that it's, it's really just become a money maker versus an education thing for the universities and that the federal government just allowed this to happen because ultimately universities can can want whatever they want it's the federal government who decides who gets in and out of the country uh, but i can't imagine that post-secondary institutions are, are going to be very happy about mm-hmm. this given the income generator that international students are for them and we'll see if there's any fallout for sure watching that moving forward uh, liberal government wrapping up a cabinet retreat any idea what the focus has been i'm guessing is it on the leader himself, perhaps? It is certainly, I would say, for those of us watching it, on the leader. For those at uh, the the caucus, and I'm, I'm sure that there's a lot of discussions there about um, how to turn this around. I mean, you, you heard a tone change, right? You heard the International Students Program. If you watched Christopher Freeland yesterday when she was talking, um, much more blunt about the economy. And I, I think that there's a recognition that they are in trouble. And their leader's in trouble, and they know that. If you talk to liberals that are very aware that they are unpopular and, and the leader is unpopular, there's been a frustration because there's been a sense when I talk to a lot of people in caucus, um, the prime minister's office isn't listening to that, that they don't believe it, that they keep saying things aren't that bad, we just have a communications problem. And a lot of the MPs are saying, no, actually things are that bad. It's not a communications pro- uh, problem. You know, People are frustrated with the liberals, and they're specifically frustrated with Justin Trudeau. Um, so they've had to adjust the way that they approach, including Mr. Trudeau, how they address things, how they recognize people's frustration. The question is going to be, is it too late? Uh, historically, Canadians don't vote prime ministers in for a fourth term in, in the modern era, uh, and Mr. Trudeau's polling numbers have been pretty devastating. Uh, but he has, uh, he, he said it to me, he said it to lots of people, but I believe he means it. He has no intention of stepping aside at all. Uh, And that is a frustration for some Liberals who believe that the longer he stays in, the bigger a liability. I was talking to a senior Liberal here in Toronto yesterday who told me he believes the loss will be catastrophic if Trudeau does not step aside, that the Conservatives will pull off what Stephen Harper did in 2011. Um, Now, keep in mind, we're still quite a ways from election, 2025, so anything could happen. Um, But at this point, it, it certainly is something that a lot of Liberals are thinking about. Quite a ways, as you, as you mentioned there, Mercedes, but, you know, with Pierre Polyev gaining support, and we've seen some incredible numbers in the past, I guess you'd say, six months or so uh, from the CPC, uh, and we are hearing and understanding, and as you just uh, alluded to with, you know, fourth term, if there's an expiration date on Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, is it, is it even worthwhile to try to hang on to see if it can turn around, or is it a sooner rather than later make that change? How, how is that determined, do you think? Well, that's that's the real calculation that they're trying to make right now. And I think that the people around the prime minister truly believe they have a plan, and they may, right? They, they may pull this off. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know what Pierre Polyev or the Conservatives uh, could trip over or could be exposed about them or could shoot themselves in the foot with between now and 2025. There's a very real concern for the Conservatives that they cannot peak too soon. Um, or that people don't see enough of a change, or that, um, the, frankly, worst-case scenario potentially for the Conservatives is that Justin Trudeau, where the focus of a lot of the anger is, steps down, and there's another leader, and they focus all their criticisms on Justin Trudeau. So, you know, if, if they pull it off, it'll be historic uh, for, for the Liberals. But 
there's just so much between now and then that I think it's really impossible to calculate it. But I don't know uh, a lot of experienced Liberals, other than those in the Prime Minister's office, who think that Justin Trudeau, and by the way, this would include members of his own cabinet, um, should stay on. But you know what? In fairness to Justin Trudeau, well, he might be the biggest liability to the party. He's also still, in a lot of ways, their biggest advantage. He's charismatic. He has a recognizable name. Uh, but the policies and decisions and tone they've taken, as well as the general frustration Canadians have about a lot of things, mm-hmm. have really built up around his personal identity in politics. And I don't know how easy it is to change that when things have slid this far. Fascinating, for sure. Uh, let's quickly touch on the, the federal New Democrats, uh, speaking of, you know, propping up the Liberals. But they are here in Alberta holding a three-day caucus retreat. Anything expected out of that? You know, I think that they're going to try to say they, they really understand what's, what's happening with Canadians. They will talk about dental care. Pharmacare is expected. Uh, that's the next big thing that the federal government has promised to do that has not yet been introduced uh, by the NDP. And I suspect that uh, their presence in Alberta is interesting and strategic. Uh, uh, they're obviously worried about uh, the Alberta NDP as well. But that's an interesting party because there's a bigger disconnect between the Alberta NDP and the federal NDP than, say, the Conservatives or the Liberals. In fact, a lot of the times they don't get along at all. And now with Rachel Notley... Uh, stepping down as leader, I think that'll be an interesting dynamic to watch there, perhaps more so than the federal side, which I think a lot of what the NDP has to say is relatively predictable there. Um, But I'd be really interested in what they have to say in Alberta politics. Give me an interesting year ahead, uh, Alberta and federally. Uh, Thanks for your time, Mercedes. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. We're talking about Alberta and the so-called energy transition. What's the worst that could happen? Well, let's ask Markham Hislop, energy journalist and publisher of Energy Media, who joins us live in studio this morning. Hi, Markham. Good morning, Sue. Good morning, Andy. Thank you for being here. Let's first kind of define and break down what the energy transition is. What what do we mean by that when we talk about it? Because we talk about it a lot in this province. What we mean is the substitution of electricity primarily and some low emission fuels like hydrogen and sustainable aviation fuel, the substitution of those for coal, oil, and gas over time. This energy transition is probably about 30 or 40 years old already maybe even 50 years old if you go back to the beginning of the uh, solar panels in the 1970s. And all of the new energy technologies that we're seeing on our streets and generating our power, like electric vehicles and batteries and wind and solar and heat pumps, all of those have been getting better and better and better over the last 10, 20 years. Now they're competitive. They're competing. You know, an electric vehicle, like I, I rode over in an Uber to, uh, today to your station, and it was a, it was a Tesla 3. Mm. And the, uh, the driver loved it. And you're seeing more and more of those. And it, the, this energy transition has, has accelerated to the point where it's actually already displacing oil, global oil demand, some global oil demand, and it's accelerating to the point where it's now an existential threat, in my opinion, to Alberta oil and gas. 
Hey, you mentioned that the time frame, Mark, I mean, is quite shocking when you say we're going back decades. The timing and the lag, is that because it's fine to have policy, it's fine to have notions, it's fine to do want to do things differently, but we needed the commercial aspect and the feasibility for businesses to make money off this sort of thing? This We actually know a lot about energy transitions. We've got people like Professor Vaclav Smil who have been studying them for decades. And in fact, 40 years ago, uh, when I did my graduate work at the University of Saskatchewan, it was on the last big energy transition from horses and steam in Saskatchewan agriculture to basically tractors and combines. But this, the process is the same. So if you imagine an S, okay? So the bottom part of the S is where the technology gets into the marketplace and begins to develop, but it's not very competitive. And it takes decades sometimes for it to become competitive. Then the, the round part of the S, as you begin to go up the, uh, up the S, is the, that's called an inflection point. And the inflection point is where that, the new technology is now competitive with the old technology, and it begins to push it out, push it out of the market and gain market share. When that happens, now you're on hockey stick growth. So now what, hap what took 50 years to do, you know, get 5% of the market, you get 50% of the market in five years. Very, very rapid mm. growth. And all of the technologies, the clean energy technologies I mentioned, have passed their inflection point. Globally, we are now past the inflection point and, and uh, we are starting to talk about maybe peak oil demand, peak gas demand by 2030, declines in, in the 2030s. And the point I want to make today, Andy, is that in Alberta, like our moms talk, taught us uh, hope for the best, plan for the worst. Mm -hmm. What we do, what the Alberta government does, what the Alberta industry does, what the gas industry does, what the business community does, is plan for the best and ignore the worst. And things are getting so accelerating so rapidly that we now need to talk about the worst because the worst for Alberta is really bad. And how likely is it? Is the worst, is it coming? I mean, we talk about it a lot, but I mean, we, we all know and everybody here in Alberta knows that transition is not happening like that. So is it, is it going to happen? How likely is it? See, we need to get away from this idea that you flick a switch and the energy transition takes it's over. Not. It's not. This is, a, this is a process that takes place over many decades, but we're already 40 or 50 decades into mm -hmm. or four, 40 or 50 years into it. L let me tell you a story. I think this will illustrate it. So in September, the World Petroleum Congress was held in, in Calgary, and I was here covering it for three days. And the whole, the Congress, the only thing anybody talked about was the Saudis were, and, and then uh, Premier Daniel Smith were saying, uh, the IEA, the International Energy Agency, is wrong. We're not going to see peak demand. We're going to see growth out to 2045. And they re were really hammered, the IEA. Well, three weeks later, the OPEC released its World Oil Outlook 2045, and that was the modeling, the analysis that backed up all of the narratives that the Saudis and Premier Smith were talking about. And they called for, for growth in oil demand from 102 million barrels a day last year to 116 million barrels a day in 2045, a long plateau and a, a long decline, long, slow decline. Great for Alberta. Mm -hmm. Alberta would be prosperous for decades. Here's the problem. Three, just two months after that, Sinopec, which is China's biggest refinery, and it's owned by the government, so it essentially speaks for the government, came out and said, we're going to have Chinese peak oil demand as early as 2026. Hmm. Wow. Could be latest to 2030, 
could be 2026. OPEC had modeled that Chinese oil demand would grow by 4 million barrels a day to 2045. They got it spectacularly wrong, spectacularly hmm. wrong. And, and then I've read the report, and you can go back and you can look, and, you know, if you know what you're looking for, you can find the other weaknesses in their assumptions. So who's right? Is it OPEC, where mm. Alberta's got a great future? Or is it the IEA, where Alberta's going to be in big trouble in maybe less than a decade? In my opinion, the IEA is far more likely than the OPEC narrative. Interesting, because I'm not sure if this will you know, be a... a illustration of your point, Markham, as far as, you know, the government maybe having the wrong approach uh, provincially, or you, you'll have another answer for this gentleman. He says, what's this guy talking about? And this guy, by the way, in case you're just joining us, is Markham Hislop, energy journalist and publisher of Energy Media. Texter goes on to say, uh, Canada and the U.S. are both producing record oil right now, and the TMX is about to start. Uh, my favorite, I get that all the time. Because the, your competition doesn't come for you when you're at the bottom of the market. They come for you when you're the most profitable. And I, I got started in journalism in the newspaper business, you know, back in the 80s. Well, if you look at the, a graph of, say, the North American newspaper industry revenue, it peaks in 2025, or sorry, it peaks in 2005. What was happening then? Google was just getting going. Mm -hmm. Facebook was just starting to sell advertising. They ate newspapers' lunches. And from 2005 to today, it's been a cliff. That revenue has fallen off the cliff, and newspapers are now uh, they're not even profitable. If it wasn't for government support, they'd all, they'd all go bankrupt. That's the potential here. So if you were, we were having this conversation in 2000, and somebody had said, oh, no, newspapers are great. They're going to be profitable forever. Yes. That's what it looks like today, but the competition is mm -hmm. coming. So the, what you, what's happening today is irrelevant. What's happening is what is your competition doing, and the competition is strengthening and coming for Alberta. And China is such a massive player. How can you ignore that, right? This is one of the major mistakes that, Al that the Alberta has made, is underestimating China. China now controls roughly 70 to 80 percent of all of the manufacturing of those clean energy technologies. It is where the Americans were after 1945. The end of the World War II, the Americans, because of the war effort, were the preeminent industrial power in the world. Today, China is the preeminent clean energy industrial power. And the Americans are running scared. I mean, we saw the inflation, U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, you know, uh, probably a trillion dollars into clean energy, other legislation. They're desperately trying to catch China. Europe is trying to, is trying to keep pace with the U.S. and China. We basically, China has kicked off a global clean energy arms race. Mm -hmm. So interesting. We uh, wish we had more time with you, Markham, but it's an interesting conversation. We appreciate your viewpoints. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. Markham Hislop, energy journalist and publisher of Energy Media. And the 38th annual High Performance Rodeo, week two, featuring different productions in the beautiful downtown Devonian Gardens. It's always an amazing exhibit of great talent. And joining us with all the details of how you can enjoy and what you can enjoy is producer of the High Performance Rodeo, Oliver Armstrong. Hi, Oliver. Good morning, Sue. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Okay, for those who don't know, tell us all about the high-performance rodeo. What the heck is it exactly? Yeah, it's not a rodeo like you'd think. There's no horses. There's no bull riding. We're a festival of, of live performance, and we, that comes in all kinds of different forms. We've got um, music-based things, theater-based shows, 
some that combine everything together with film on screen. It's a pretty wide variety. Um, we try to make it easy for folks to come downtown. Most of our shows are in Arts Commons, right in the downtown core. You mentioned Devonian Gardens. We do have one special show uh, in the Devonian Gardens this year. Um, the performer stands in the pond, and you sit around and you watch them, and hip waiters tell the story. <laughs> Oliver, because it is so unique, because the breadth of the different artists and, and you know, the, the lineup is so varied, how do you curate something like this? So, so what's the meter stick to say this would be a good act to fit in the high-performance rodeo? Yeah, great question. Um, anything that is high-energy, virtuosic, and joyful, if the live performance aspect of it is, is something that is really... Um, engaging to an audience, that's something we want to put in the rodeo. Um, so, you know, and we do know, if you look at our full lineup, it's over 25 shows in, in just three weeks. We know that can seem a little bit overwhelming, and folks may not know, you know, how do I pick and choose? So I want to welcome anybody to the festival to take a look at our website, scroll through. Don't feel you've got to find five shows and pack them all in. If you just want to find one fun thing, um, you know, make, make an evening of it. Uh, we have our beautiful pop-up bar, the Laycraft Lounge, uh, which is right across from the Big Secret Theater and Arts Commons. So you can come and have a drink before the show, and maybe we'll entice you. There'll be some festival buzz. You'll hear stories from, from your fellow patrons about some other show or some other thing that might be cool to see at the rodeo. And uh, all tickets are affordable. Everything is between 20 and $49. How long has this been going on? Because this festival has been around for some time now. Yeah, this is our 38th annual. Wow. Um, it's, it's kind of amazing. This festival started, uh, it was sort of a punk upstart group of theater artists. They literally had their first festival in a freight elevator uh, 39 years ago. Um, we've moved on to bigger theaters. The size of the festival has varied over the years, but um, yeah, this is not our first rodeo. <laughs> I love that. Not your first rodeo. And it's interesting because, you know, not only do you have some emerging artists, some, some new and off the beaten path, but some names including, I, I believe you just wrapped up one show with one kid in the hall and cue the next kid in the hall to be coming down in uh, February. Yeah, that's right. We got two kids. Um, we just finished our run with Scott Thompson um, in the Martha Cohen Theater. And in our third week, so opening on Thursday, February 1st, we have Bruce McCullough with a brand-new world premiere of his one-person show, uh, Dark Purple Slice. Oh, I misspoke. Actually, he has a musician with him. He has Craig Norvey from The Odds playing guitar, so there'll be some songs in that show. Uh, but Bruce McCullough is a friend of uh, One Yellow Rabbit. We're thrilled to have him back. Tell us a little bit about One Yellow Rabbit, because this festival is, is all based on One Yellow Rabbit, the organization. That's right. One Yellow Rabbit is, we've got two pillars in our organization. One is our creation ensemble. We've been creating new work together um, for for this many years, for about 40 years. The other pillar of, the, of One Yellow Rabbit is the High Performance Rodeo Festival, which we do once a year. So it's both a company that creates new work year-round, but also presents all this work crammed into the three weeks. Um, you know, the vibe of both is, is I, as I said before, that sort of virtuosic performance, that stuff that is really just fun to watch. Um, sometimes the content will make you think, but it'll always make you happy and and joyful. That's our mission. Uh, we're going to be uh, directing people, Oliver, to OYR.org for OneYellowRabbit.org. Uh, but as far as tickets, with so much going on over uh, you know, a, a handful of weeks, do you have packages or do you just pick and choose which show you want to check out? You pick and choose. What we've done, especially over the weekend uh, time frame, the Fridays and the Saturdays, is we've got some evening shows. We've also got some late night shows, the ones that start at 9 or 9.30. 
And then on Saturdays and Sundays, there's often a couple of matinees too. So if you want to build your own little package, you can see a couple of things in one day. You know, just come on downtown, park once indoors at Arts Commons, stay off the roads, um, have, a, have a chat with us in between at the Lakecraft Lounge and see a couple of things. Um, but yes, all the shows are available at OYR.org individually. And uh, keep an eye on our Instagram too, uh, HP Rodeo, because there are going to be some promotions going out on a daily basis. Brilliant. Uh, the weather's warming up and the high-performance rodeo is definitely heating up too. Thanks so much for joining us, breaking it all down, Oliver. Have a great day. You're welcome. You too. Thanks. Oliver Armstrong, producer of the High Performance Rodeo Festival. Again, OYR.org. Go enjoy one of the shows.